Hello and welcome to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, a game design enthusiast, role-playing game editor, indie hustler slash promoter and interview podcaster. You can find me on Twitter at IamFofos and on itch.io at blue-golem-games.itch.io. This week, I interviewed Taylor Danio of Tinker Taylor Publications about several of their games, including This Vineyard Will Be Our Salvation, a game which looks like it's about ducks and geese, but is really about how work can be a dreadful experience. We also talk about games for social justice and how about learning through play is good, unless it's through gamification. It was a great chat and I know you're going to love it. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. Today we're talking to Taylor Danio. Hi there, Taylor. Hey Would you like to uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do in indie tabletop role-playing games? All right. Uh, hello, Tanshi. My name is Taylor Danio. I'm an indie game designer who publishes under the like press name uh, Tinker Taylor Publications. I'm also a teacher and sometimes design games for my kids, but those games tend not to be super public. I think you've got a few things to talk about. The one I'm particularly interested in starting with is your latest game, which is This Vineyard Will Be Our Salvation. Would you like to give us a little bit of an elevator pitch on that? Yeah. Okay, so This Vineyard Will Be Our Salvation is a game where you play as ducks, specifically Indian runner ducks or geese who work in a vineyard. And the vineyard is this place where these ducks and geese are able to work without fear of ever winding up on a dinner plate. And when they are too old to work, they are promised that they will get to go to a Faradesi island, an island paradise. But as they play, they realize that even within the vineyard, where they are supposed to be safe, there is constant stressors and dangers and conflicts that come up throughout their working life. And they have to ask by the time it's, it comes that they are ready to retire, was this all worth it? Okay. That sounds really cool. <laughs> uh, playing as India runner ducks or geese, I mean, you had me pretty much at that line. Would you like to hint at what some of the themes of this game might be? Yeah, well, I mean, like, this game came out of a game jam that had two people submit. So I was one and the creator of the game jam was the other. It was the Atlas Obscura Jam. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the idea behind it was that we pick an Atlas Obscura article that we liked and turn that into a game. And at that point in time, I was upset about the state of the world where the only way to actually effectively retire is to spend your entire life working. The quote-unquote best years of your life are, are devoted to a company that doesn't necessarily care about you, no matter what promises they make you or how they how they say to protect you. So a lot of the game is just highlighting that general anxiety about needing to spend the next 35 years of my life working for an organization that has no real investment in my well-being so long as I am putting out the content that they want. Yeah. And that's reflected in the game where ducks come into conflict with each other. There is a constant stress of this overwhelming crime force, which is represented uh, as like a mongoose crime family and a, the power of the Parliament of Owls, which is an effective totalitarian government that can engage with the players in almost always negative ways. And and that isn't to say that like the entire game is about work sucking, because sometimes there's just like times where you get to be worth something and you get to be proud of yourself. And that's like an exciting experience where you get to say like, I am the best at something here. Why am I the one who is the best? Or why am I the one who gets to do this? But there are other times where your coworkers don't trust you. 
I, I kind of want to ask why particularly ducks and geese <laughs> um, and animals rather than, you know, not stepping back from that a little bit. The original reason for the ducks and geese was because uh, the Atlas Obscure article that I based my game off of, it's about a vineyard that employs over 2,000 Indian runner ducks to tend to the the plants in the vineyard. So the ducks go in every day on a, on a worker schedule of like nine to five. They eat the, the slugs and bugs that would destroy the crops. And then they march back to their pens. And these ducks do seem to live a very good life, right? Like this is an actual workplace that does care about their ducks. And the ducks actually do have an island that they get to retire to. So they, they don't get served on plates. They get too old to work. And then they go to an island where they can eat slugs and, and live out the last uh, years of their life. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I kind of assumed that that was a kind of a, oh, yeah, they've gone to a nice field in the country kind of deal. But maybe if that's actually real, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, like that is in the game. That is definitely an idea that it's like you actually just work until you die because that is what life is sometimes. Would you believe that I like my job? <laughs> yeah, but like the the issue is that uh, I live in a province where our federal government has tested a minimum income that was guaranteed back in, I think, the 70s or 80s. And it was in a rural town not too far from this major city that I live in. And what we saw was more kids graduated from school. Young people who were pregnant were able to actually support their family and there was no final report because the liberal government was voted out of office federally during this pilot project and a conservative government came in, shut down the program and didn't table a final report. Right. Helpfully. Of course. Right. Because the findings from what researchers could piece together all the way up till now was that a guaranteed minimum income is actually a very effective way to produce the paradise island effect. The, the idea that people will still work if they have a guaranteed minimum income. In fact, they'll work in the career that they want, as opposed to a career that they simply need to take because it's their only option. I'm so pleased you said that because like, I feel like I've been trying to explain that to people for years and years and years. And, you know, to actually have some even scant evidence to point to that says, hey, do you know what? That's not true. Uh, would be really nice. It's important to be able to collect that evidence. And it's such a an upsetting feeling realizing that like, had that government maybe stayed in power a little bit longer, there was a potential for my mom who had me when she was 16. She turned 17 a couple of days later uh, and my dad turned 17 like a day after her. They would have been able to have a much more stable time raising me and my sisters as very young parents. Yeah. I imagine that my mom wouldn't have had to work at jobs that she didn't want to. And that when I look at my entire family history and I look at the people in my family who are working jobs by necessity, as opposed to working jobs that actually fulfill them in meaningful ways, the realization that if they had just received a little bit of help from a government that they are paying taxes to, they would have been able to do something wildly different with their life and maybe have a, a different sense of fulfillment. Yeah. And in, in this vineyard will be our salvation. These are ducks that are either born in the vineyard or are pulled in because the circumstances outside of the vineyard are so inhospitable to them that it is their only choice. It's really fascinating. And um, yeah, those big themes to hit with the game. So <laughs> kudos. So mechanically then, how do how do we bring out those themes through play? Yeah, uh, this is a this game is a hack of For the Queen by Alex Roberts. Oh, I'm so excited. We haven't had a For the Queen hack yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. the first. <laughs> 
For anyone who doesn't know what For the Queen is, For the Queen is a role-playing game where a group of people who are in a Queen's Noble Court are asked to go on a journey for XYZ reason, and you draw cards and they give you prompts that you answer. So they're questions like, why does the Queen favor you? Why are you the one who does this job for the Queen? And as you answer, the characters start to ask, what is my specific relationship with the queen and how is it good and how is it bad? Yeah. And it gets to the point where the queen comes under attack and the game ends with each character deciding whether or not they help the queen. Yeah. And so with this vineyard will be our salvation because it is a PDF. I didn't want to create a like bunch of cards that people print out because I know that that is one, a barrier for entry for a number of people. And two, just kind of like a lot of work. A lot of work, yeah. Uh, So I made a table. I called it a salvation table when I was designing it. And it's just the, I think it's a six by eight table that has every option that you could possibly roll. If you roll a one, one, then you get the question that ends the game. Yeah. Any other time, it's like you just find your place on the grid, you answer the question, and then you draw an arrow. And that arrow directs you to a different question. So if somebody rolls the same question that you've already answered, they just follow the arrows. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> I really like the sound of that. Okay, yeah, brilliant. It makes it easy to play on things like Roll20, where all you need is like a shared screen and everyone can draw. That's actually how we playtested it with my friends. We we would just draw on Roll20 while we were playing through the game. I'm so thrilled because I really like For the Queen, but I can't afford to buy it <laughs> in the physical version. And I feel like, yes, it would be really annoying to have to print off all the cards. Yeah, I'm very intrigued. That sounds really, really, really good. And I definitely encourage people to go out there and pick it up. It's available now, I guess. It is available now. Yeah, that's uh, tinkertaylorpublications.itch.io backslash vineyard. If you'd like a physical copy, you can get that too as a zine where I make the center spread the the, the actual game board. Oh, cool. Uh, and so you get that as a salvation table so that you can physically do that. Cool. And of course, like scan copy that page as you need if you're going to order the zine. Know what I'm doing later, basically. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, um, thanks very much for telling us about that. I really, I really like the sound of it, and it sounds really cool. You have some other stuff out that maybe you'd like to talk about, and the thing that caught my eye particularly was Treaty Negotiation Simulator. Do you want to give us a few hints about what that's about? I think the title gives it away. <laughs> yeah. It was like the first real TTRPG that I made that was a purposeful hack and also a game that actually worked. And it was designed for a course actually on middle years education. We were talking about game-based learning as opposed to gamification. And I got really into that idea of like learning through play versus learning through gamification as a, a behaviorist concept. Should we just go briefly into what gamification is? Because I don't imagine everybody is aware of this. Right, yeah. No, I'm using I'm using $10 words. I know what gamification is, but that's because my industry thinks it's cool. I do not. <laughs> but uh, game-based learning, I'm very down with. It's amazing how different those things are. So, like, gamification versus game-based learning 101. Gamification is a process by which you can layer game-like elements onto learning goals in order to provide positive... Uh, reinforcement or positive punishment to change the way that people behave within the system. Yeah. In a classroom, you could see it as like a token economy where you do the right thing and then the teacher gives you a ticket that at the end of the week you can cash in for a prize. Yeah. I think other tools that people suggest are like unlocking achievements and experience tracks and things like that. And when used in a corporate environment, I am very, very cynical about it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I worked at a telemarketing agency when I was in grade 10. So I was uh, 16 years old. It was the summer between grade 9 and 10 or 10 and 11. Yeah. The way that we spent our Saturdays was a survivor island sort of thing where every time you made a sale, you would get to either vote yourself back onto the island if you were voted off or vote somebody else off of the island. Gosh. So the idea is you compete to, until only one person is left and whoever is left at the end of the day gets like an, a bonus $50 on their paycheck because they're paying you minimum <sighs> wage and don't give you rewards for making sales anyway. I had so many issues with that. <laughs> it sucked. It sucked so bad. That's a very bad way to run a company. Just as a hint to everybody out there, when we talk about gamification, do not do that, even if you think the rest of the theory sounds cool. I don't like it at all. Uh, Game-based learning is... It has the potential to do the same thing, but oftentimes it is used as a way to challenge gamification as the only model for like inserting quote-unquote play into learning or... In, in workplaces, I'm sure, uh, just performance. Game-based learning turns the sort of authoritarian structure of gamification into a horizontal power structure where the goal is to accomplish tasks that help you to learn new things and maybe see things from different lights or or challenge your, your presently held views. Right. So I think we should use your game as an example for that. Yeah. Uh, so Treaty Negotiation Simulator was designed to challenge the views of young people in Canada who don't really understand the way that treaties worked. Uh, I'm going to give away the ending of the game because it, that's the whole point. It's, it's a teaching tool. Treaty Negotiation Simulator uses a trust track that was created for a different game. I'm blanking on its title right now. Adventurer and Troll. There we go. Yeah, I thought the trust track sounded familiar. That is the source of the trust track. I did feel a little awkward using a game called Adventurer and Troll to create an analog for settlers and indigenous people, admittedly. Um, yeah. It's a good track. I like the system. It does what it needs to do. And so yeah. I, I decided in the end that that was the choice that I was going to make. You have one side of the board that is prompts for a treaty commissioner from the crown. So that is at the time that the treaties are being written, depending on when in a lesson plan I would be doing this, either the Canadian crown or the British crown. Right. And on the other side is a chief of a First Nation. So this First Nation's chief is meeting with the treaty commissioner, and they are going to sit there and talk until they are able to reach an agreement. Yeah. They have a box that says what each of them wants. So the chief wants free education. He wants to make sure that his people are always healthy. He wants things that will keep his nation sovereign. The treaty commissioner is told that they have to make sure that everything that is done is cost effective for the crown. If they're promising school, the school is under the federal control. The school is away from the community so that it's harder to access. And these are real things that happened in history uh, of nation building in what is now Canada. At the end of the game, you roll based off of wherever your die lands on the trust track. So if the treaty commissioner is making promises that the First Nations chief likes, they will move their a six-sided die up a, a track in the middle of the board numbered one through six. The treaty commissioner can end negotiations at any time by rolling the die and trying to get equal to that number or higher, which will allow them to say, yes, we've made treaty, or getting lower than that number, which means, oh, we didn't succeed this time, we'll come back later. I think that's really interesting. Um, all of that sounds like a tool that could be used really effectively in classrooms. I am now thinking back to when we were learning history at school, our history teachers were like big into role play. <laughs> nice. And the two lessons that 
stuck out to me was one about the Enclosures Act, which was an act which basically turned all of the common land into privately owned fields and sort of a death blow to common agricultural practice. In that game, we role-played having a debate about whether our village was going to adopt this. And like, that's really cool. <laughs> and like, as a sort of 13-year-old, I don't think I kind of picked up on the process, but we all had a lot of fun. And the other one that we did was we all turned the desks over and had trench warfare for an afternoon, which was obviously pretty horrific to make children <laughs> do that. I have never forgotten any of those lessons. So <laughs> they really reinforce these ideas and are a lot of fun. And I think there is so much potential for role-playing games and story games to do that in classrooms and in early years education. And so big kudos to bring this to my attention. Yeah, I mean, like the important thing with historical reenactments is... Uh, like what you choose to value and what the the end goal is. So like if you want to teach about the horrors of war, give kids backpacks full of like printer paper and tell them to march up a hill as kids on the top start throwing dodgeballs at them. And if you get hit with a dodgeball, you have to go down the hill and start running back up again. And you can't stop until you get to the top. There you go. You've hit on a fantastic idea for a game. That was our former minister of education uh, ran that as a lesson when he was a teacher. I'm impressed that people are taking these ideas seriously. Yeah, games are one of the strongest learning tools because our brains are designed to pick up on what is novel and what is new. And games are yeah. almost always both of those things. And yeah. so the real challenge is making sure that you design a game that actually leads them to the the point of transformative learning where they are a different person or have a new way of seeing the world for playing that game. And that's hard and not something that you can consistently hit, but it's it's a noble goal, at least. Yeah, a very noble goal. I'm really fascinated and I'm very envious of your kids in your classes. (laughs) Well, thank you. To have a a professional game designer as their teacher. Very cool. Do you get your kids to make games as well? I didn't last year, but I am currently prepping for, uh, I'm going to have a grade seven and grade six English class. So a lot of my schedule is going to be teaching English. I think that I want to break from some of the more traditional units where we like write letters and and do rehearsal of of common English things to give them a chance to pick between either like a game design unit or a script writing, like something that's more uh, inherently creative and not something that they would traditionally do in a grade six or seven classroom. I'm prepping some little game design modules that are based off of like, how can you make an easy hack? And so I've got the trust track is going to be a tool that I describe and give them an access to like that and a game that I made called Your Daughter Has a Worm in Her Pocket. And it's where you're trying to convince your three or four year old daughter that she needs to take the worm out of her pocket. And if you win the game, then she will tell you the real reason that she has a worm in her pocket. It isn't about the worm because kids don't know how to communicate their complex emotions at, with the immediacy that some adults are able to. Yeah. So the goal of the game is really to have a young person learn how to be tender with their young child who will eventually reveal the reason that they have the worm in their pocket once they feel like they are safe and loved and belong. Wow, (laughs) that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I really like that. That one won a little RPG design contest on uh, the RPG Talk Discord, which if people are out there looking to design games or just talk about games in a space that doesn't suck, RPG Talk is that Discord. You should find that out. I know you will have made Turtle Hat very, very happy by saying that. So, <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. That is a really, really good Discord server. And please join it. If you do, you can talk to me as well as Taylor. Yeah. I wish I had learned game design at school. That would have been fantastic. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
and now when you talk about game design, I think people think a different thing. I think they think about video game design, and they don't necessarily think of board game design and role-playing game design, but they're all parts of the same puzzle, even if you don't need programming skills. They're all different literacies, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Treaty Negotiation Simulator is uh, learning as a game, and that's very cool. Thanks for telling us about that. <laughs> no, the ending of that, uh, I just want to maybe tack on here. If anyone's like, oh, this is a cool, hopeful game. Uh, it is not. The ending of that is bad for the First Nations chief, no matter what happens. Uh, I won't go into super big details, but that's where, like, y if you were going to run this game for kids, you need to be prepared to then talk about the general history of Canada and of treaty making writ large. That is a really important lesson, and if you can teach people that through the disappointment of losing a game, as it seems, then yeah, that's a powerful way to teach people stuff. I just wanted to make sure that that was uh, clear, because I have this big fear of, of somebody buying that game and then realizing that it doesn't feel fun to win or to lose. Right. And then realizing, like, yeah. this wasn't really a game to just sit down and play. Like, it's not a beer and pretzel game for, for you and your friends, necessarily. I think one of the things we've touched on there is about game design as a tool for education, but also as a kind of method of discussing social justice issues. I think this is something you're quite interested in. Do you want to tell us a bit about how you feel about that? Yeah, yeah. So lately, especially when I've been designing games, I've been thinking about what the messages embedded in them are, because I think that I think that it is safe to say, and I won't start a huge flame war, uh, if I say that games are products, and because they are products, they have politics embedded in them. Not with me, you won't. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> very, very up my street. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I want to make sure that when I'm creating games, I'm creating a sort of politic of care and of tolerance, but also pushing for pushing for that in the players. There was a game that I made. It's a one-page game that I used as an end to a unit when I was teaching a a book called No Safe Place. The book is about refugees, so I created a game about refugees on a boat trying to make their way to somewhere safe. Right. And it's called, I know that when they see your face, they will understand why I moved heaven and earth to bring you here. That's a reference from another children's book that I could never find. <laughs> That's the uh, longest game name I have ever heard. I am a sucker for long game titles. Yeah, I gotta say, yeah. <laughs> that must have been most of the page. That's lovely. That's a really nice quote. But the idea is like you're a family seeking asylum, you're in unknown lands, and you draw a card so the suit dictates who gets to answer the question and the number gets to dictate what the question is. So if you were to draw a five of hearts, for example, the player who draws the card answers when it when it's a heart, and so you would get to answer the question, someone hurts you, who and how. And what I realized in passing this game to my middle school students is that some of them are ready to engage with this, with their understanding of what it means to be a refugee and are able to take in the ideas from the from the, the book that we read, others just find this kind of traumatizing. And I don't think that I'm going to use this game again in its in the form that it is, just because if historical reenactments or if gaming for game-based learning is going to cause harm to the students that I'm teaching, then it's not teaching them, it's scaring them. Yeah. And so making games for social justice, this is a game for social justice, but what use is it if it's for, uh, if it's going to traumatize the audience that is already aware of what it's like to be a refugee. Right, yeah, yeah. I get where you're coming from there. Yeah, and I mean, like, there are other games that I've made, like, even uh, This Vineyard Will Be Our Salvation. That is a game for social justice. It's it's imagining a better world or a world in the future where 
we could move away from uh, a system where you need to rely on a vineyard to be your salvation. Yeah, to some extent, when you start writing a game that has very strong social justice themes or very strong real world themes, as I do, even when they're in fictional settings, even when they're in fantasy settings, this is something that I do. I think about what points I want to make. And with the best will in the world and with the best content warnings in the world, there is no way that you can guarantee how that game is going to be played and you don't know what audience is going to be playing that game and you don't know what their experiences are going to be. Maybe there is a question about what themes are acceptable to be explored <laughs> through play. Is that, and maybe is that's something that you're trying to express here. Well, I mean, I think that there is room to make games about trauma and about negative experiences, but the goal of a writer is to think about a very specific audience that they are writing for. So when I wrote this game, it was supposed to be me writing for my students, and I failed to account for my students' experiences coming into this game. If I was writing this for, uh, like, just for the people on, say, the RPG Talk server Discord because I submitted it for a contest entry, then this is a good game that it works. It's like, you know, it's ready to go. But in a situation where I am the person in the room who has the power to say, this is what we are doing today, you have to engage with this. It's, I think, not where it should be. Uh, and that's the same thing with like, if you're writing a letter to the prime minister to complain about something, you don't want to muddy your statement by mentioning other people or other things. You, you have one thing that you want and you're writing to one person, write like that. It, it, game design is a different literacy than letter writing, but it is still a letter to somebody in a way that consideration of the audience is maybe a thing that indie does better than the mainstream in a way <laughs> I, I definitely think so we are often very in touch with our audiences we know who is going to buy and play our games often we have a better connection if you like and we are able to streamline our design process to make those people feel comfortable with the games that we are going to make i think yeah I mean, I am all for indie designers being able to write games for who they want to who they want. But I also think that like Dungeons and Dragons, for example, is a game that is a very long letter written to a very specific type of person. And it's a type of person who enjoys tactical gameplay, who enjoys generic fantasy tropes, and who isn't going to be incredibly critical or hurt when they read definitions uh, of mechanized race science or when they they come across the half-orc entry and read about their general savagery right right like i've also seen a, a DD table from an earlier edition that is like the the chart of DD race phylogeny and it's completely unnecessary yeah i think i know which one you're talking about and like the whole thing is very awful and there's the way that race has been baked into that game from the beginning and now we are stuck with that term and it's really hard to move away from it because people just say what do you mean race and ah you know <laughs> this is a reason i have stopped playing dungeons and dragons right <laughs> uh, it's just um it's all of that and it's the go away and stab things and steal their stuff and yeah you're right it is a long letter to a person who is not the kind of person that i want to play games with effectively to, to be kind to D&D for one moment, and that is all that I will, like, we don't need to sing its praises, but um, I am an indigenous teacher in a school where I am the only indigenous teacher. My skin is white, so that's something that I have to say for my kids to know. Uh, I am Métis. My, I have students who are Métis. I have other students who are First Nations. 
And some of them show up to my after school Dungeons and Dragons club that I was running all of last year. It was my first year teaching and I thought, okay. And a lot of them enjoyed the game, but the ones who came to my club were also enjoying the idea of there being a space in the school that wasn't just an athletic club and was something that could include them. So my goal for next year with the idea of social justice as a, a part of practice as a teacher and also practice as a game designer is to start bringing in little micro games and other things that they can do in their one session where they are able to show up uh, and play something other than D&D. Uh, so itch.io wow. is going to be a huge resource for that because there are game designers <laughs> that I would love to support with a school budget and uh, and buy some copies of their games. Absolutely. I That sounds so, so good. And I, I kind of wish that I had a space in which I could do that with kids as well. <laughs> I mean, we'll see how the year goes. I might not be able to be running clubs anytime soon, but... Uh, I'm, I'm going to find a way to, to get something for them, I think. Well, you know, kudos to you because running games for kids is rewarding. It's also tough. And <laughs> I'm so glad that they had a good time. And yeah, okay. When I was younger, I also enjoyed playing Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, there you are. That's my yes, indeed, confession for this week. And <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have a problem with Dungeons & Dragons in many respects. And in others, I do. Yeah. So let's focus on the positive there, which is that it's a good way for kids to get into that world, which is a fantastic world to explore. I think that there is also a benefit to me being the one running it and kind of cherry picking the kinds of things that they see from the book as well, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, with the right DM, you can do a lot of things. <laughs> Uh, what I've been thinking about a lot lately is I have been listening to your podcast, of course, and I, I know about the co-op that you're a part of, and I've been thinking about ways in which indigenous game designers are often isolated by geography where we don't necessarily have a lot of local community indigenous game dev spaces that we can occupy because it's usually like well i'm one of six in winnipeg and you're out there in chicago and you're three oceans away right yeah so i've been looking at patreon as a space to create a magazine so if anyone listening is an indigenous game designer or developer or critic or reviewer and would like to be a part of a magazine of exclusively indigenous voices in indie tabletop and video games, hit me up because I would love to have your writing and I will pay you for it. And we will together create a cool magazine that people can subscribe to at patreon.com. That sounds amazing. Um, And yeah, please, if you are listening, please get in touch with Taylor because that sounds like an amazing project. Yeah, if you go live with that, just let me know and I will spread the word because uh, I'm always down with indie zines and I am always down with supporting people. Cool, cool, cool. Taylor, do you want to tell us where else we can find you on the internet? All right, so I am Taylor Daniel. You can find me at uh, TaylorDND on Twitter. That's Taylor Derek Nick Daniel in case you were thinking it was the other thing. You can find my games at tinkertaylorpublications.itch.io. And if you're interested in the stuff I do as a teacher and that whole field, you can see my personal website at teacher-taylor.com. There's an indigenous database if anyone is looking for information on indigenous peoples globally. Right now, I think we've got mostly stuff on my nation, which is the Métis, that I'm slowly adding to that as well. Brilliant. Well, all that remains is for me to say thank you very much for coming on Yes Indeed, and I hope to speak to you again in the future because all of your projects sound amazing. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be a part of this. Yeah, no worries. Goodbye for now. All right, goodbye. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Taylor for the interview. 
As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. Next time, I'll be interviewing Andrew C of Halfling Caravan Games about his system for emulating pulp films, Betamax, and about his latest game in that system, Betamax Theft, a love letter to heist films of all kinds. Tune in in two weeks to find out more, because it was such a fun interview to record. If you enjoy Yes Indeed Pod, please rate and review the show wherever you find your podcasts, or consider donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at IamFofos. That's I-A-M-P-H-O-P-H-O-S. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and Filmmusic.io. Thanks, Kevin. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed. <laughs>